0: Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust.
2: Teachers with health risks or family members at risk are weighing going back to school during a pandemic.
3: I can request a leave of absence for a year, or I can resign, which means I have no income and no health insurance.
2: From the New England News Collaborative, this is next. We'll meet three teachers facing that agonizing decision. Plus, a doctor who has experienced racism vows to stop being silent when she witnesses injustice.
4: It's not enough for you to not be racist. Like, you have to actively be an anti-racist.
2: And later on the show, we remember a Black transgender woman whose brutal murder in Boston helped spark a global movement.
5: We want her to be looking down at us smiling, like, want her legacy to move on and to mean something. We don't want her death to go in vain.
2: It's next. It's next.
6: Next is produced at Connecticut Public Radio and is powered by the New England News Collaborative, 10 public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.
2: I'm Morgan Springer. Thanks for joining us. School districts across New England continue to face a lot of unknowns. One big question is whether teachers with health concerns have to return to school Or if they can work remotely. New Hampshire Public Radio's Sarah Gibson caught up with three teachers in the state who are in the midst of figuring out how their districts will accommodate them and whether that will be enough. Beth
7: Frank has two families, her husband and relatives, and then what she calls her work family, the teachers and students at John Stark Regional High School where she runs the academic support program. She's the kind of teacher who keeps snacks for students in her desk, always knows what homework they owe and what they're struggling with at home.
2: Oh, many of the students call me Mama Frank. (laughs) Um, You know, I
8: become their school mom. They call me school mom. Some just call me mom. Some call me Mama Frank.
7: Normally, Frank would be excited to see her work family again. But when she learned schools were planning to reopen,
0: I started panicking. The minute I started thinking of having to return into the building.
7: Panicking because Frank is high risk for COVID-19. Both she and her husband have underlying conditions that could lead to serious complications if they get the virus. We don't
0: intermingle out in public. We don't go into places. Um, I can count maybe on one hand how many times I have actually gone out because of my risk.
7: Frank is in a conundrum that hundreds of teachers are facing. She loves her job, but returning feels too risky, even if the school institutes good safety measures. Frank's conditions are serious enough that she's working with her union and district to get an accommodation under disability law. Her hope is to be matched virtually with students in the district who opt to learn remotely this year. For Frank, the options are clear. Either she gets permission to work remotely or she resigns. But for many other teachers, the decision is less black and white.
2: Oh, can I have cheese, please? Hello.
7: Take the household of Kelly Bresnahan, a special ed teacher in Manchester. She has two school-age kids and is raising her oldest child's kids as well. No, baby. Now you can sit here. And there's a lot to juggle. Bresnahan herself has asthma, making her higher risk for COVID nineteen, and her grandkids both have cystic fibrosis (CF), which makes their health fragile to begin with. They both take dozens of pills a day, and one uses a feeding tube. The CF already causes them to have to fight every day. And then if they get COVID, they have to fight those side effects on top of the CF. It's just, ugh. Going back to school introduces so many unknowns into this family's life. With her grandson sitting on her lap, Bresnahan wonders, is it possible to contract the virus from her second grade students? Do the educational benefits of in-person school for her kids and grandkids outweigh the risks? Maybe I'm stressing out too much and it's not going to be that bad. Maybe i am it's perfectly normal for me to stress out and it's going to be bad. I don't know. <laughs> That's why Bresnahan is debating whether to keep her whole family home next year. She and her husband would oversee remote learning, and if her district allows it, she would work remotely. I, I want to work. I love working. So it makes me sad to, to have to take a leave of absence. I don't want this disease to win. You know take over my life and trap me you know and then there are teachers financial concerns trevor duval is a high school teacher in hollis his wife has cancer and kidney disease and he's terrified of bringing the virus home to
3: her there's a level of guilt there that i don't think i would ever be able to forgive myself for
7: duval's options aren't great Protections under disability law and coronavirus legislation don't do much for a teacher who's healthy but whose spouse is sick. He could take family medical leave, but...
3: We are a single-income family, so that really isn't a great option. Um, I can request a leave of absence for a year, or I can resign, which means I have no income and no health insurance.
7: No insurance for his wife who's undergoing cancer treatment so there's a good chance Duval will go back to school. If he does, he and his wife will assess the district's safety guidelines and decide whether, for her health, he should stay in their finished basement and limit close contact with her for the year. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Sarah Gibson.
2: As Massachusetts school districts submit their fall proposals to the state, many parents are coming up with their own contingency plans. Some are considering a type of communal homeschooling known as homeschool pods. But there's a concern that model could just help some families at the expense of the broader community. New England Public Media's Karen Brown reports.
9: Ryan Merton's daughter is going into fourth grade, and in normal times, she would be delighted to return to Jackson Street Elementary in Northampton. Merton says the whole family loves being in the public school system.
3: School is one of the few fair, egalitarian, caring aspects of society.
9: Of course, these aren't normal times. The state directed schools across Massachusetts to prepare for three potential scenarios— all learning online, all in person, or a hybrid of the two. Merton is hoping for online only. He worries that any in-person instruction will be so restrictive that he can't imagine his daughter, or any student, getting much out of it. In one proposal, he says,
3: The kids would not have P.E. or art or recess, and their food would be brought to them in each individual room. Which at that point, basically, they're just like sitting in a desk going crazy for five hours a day.
9: And he thinks it's likely that even if students and teachers start in the building, they'll be sent home partway through the fall.
3: And I would rather have a plan now than be scrambling in the middle of October.
9: That plan is a homeschooling pod, a scenario gaining popularity across the country, in which families join together in small groups to teach their kids. Merton says that could mean hiring a teacher or sharing teaching duties among parents. He works at a cafe.
3: If there is an option where I can keep mostly working full-time there, that would definitely be my dream.
9: But this model has many critics, including public school leaders. Amy Proietti chairs the Greenfield School Committee. She worries that homeschooling pods may create more divisions in the community by income and by race.
10: Because the ability to homeschool takes a huge amount of resources, time, uh, energy, motivation, advocacy. It just stands in such stark contrast to me of what we are actually out fighting for right now.
9: Poyetti, who's pushing for an online-only option, says she knows families are in a bind. But she would prefer they double down in support of public education and focus on ways to bring less advantaged kids into the fold. We're kind of bare bones
10: already, and to lose people to a the homeschooling pod, I think it just really affects, you know, morale of, like, we're in this all together
9: Ryan Merton says he understands these concerns, but he thinks it's unfair to single out communal homeschooling. He says the privilege of homeschooling is a symptom of systemic inequality, not a cause.
3: It will be as disequitous as life always is. You know, the the rich will have microscopes and big screen computers for everyone, but I think it misses something to say that it is basically Evil to form pods.
9: Some educators have started to think about another option that combines public education with home based pods.
10: Can we work with our public school to create pods for everybody and have the teachers we're already paying staff these pods?
9: Steve Barnett is co director of the National Institute for Early Education Research. If it's every family for itself, he worries about inequality among homeschooling pods. For instance, high-income professional parents may have more academic skills to teach than parents with less education.
10: You can get some equalization if, if the public schools are helping to organize and get resources to everybody uh, on this model.
9: For now, that's not one of the options in western Massachusetts. So Ryan Merton and his partner are still exploring a private homeschool pod. They'd prefer to work with families they know, but have also put out word on a community Facebook page. Merton says many people seem interested in principle.
3: But also a lot of people were like, no, we're going to go with the school. We want to get back to normal, which I think is like a really sweet and optimistic thing.
9: Merton says however next year plays out, they're hoping the 2021 school year will be close to normal and they have every intention of returning to the building. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Karen Brown.
2: Over the summer, even though schools are closed, some teachers have led discussions about race with their students, virtually. As part of WBUR's series, Lessons Learned, we hear from rising seniors at New Bedford High School in Massachusetts and their English teacher about why talking about racism shouldn't be left to history class alone.
8: When COVID-19 first started, I felt like, I couldn't speak up for anything. I felt like I should just go with the flow. I shouldn't say anything. But with the Black Lives Matter movement, I was able to say, no, I'm going to say what I want. I'm going to say what needs to be said. And I was able to go to many protests and voice my true opinion about what's happening in this world. Hello, I am Jessica Brito. I am a junior going into my senior year.
11: Hi, my name is Maxine and I am a junior going into my senior year next year. I have family members who are immunocompromised and have medical issues where I can't go out and protest. This pandemic has made it harder for me to be an activist, but um, it's also made me have those uncomfortable conversations that really need to be had.
1: My students, you know, the future generation, Um, are the ones who are gonna lead this change. And really, my role is to just create that space and then to cheerlead them on. Hi, my name is Takeru Nagayoshi and I am a high school English teacher in New Bedford, Massachusetts. We had our own DOOM uh, session to talk about Black Lives Matter and the protests that are taking place. I was very much prepared uh, to have all these talking points to inform you, but you led the entire discussion. All I did there was stand back in silence and let you lead and share your perspectives. And I had goosebumps the whole time.
8: Hi, I'm Raquel Reese. I'm proud to say that I'm a new Bedford whaler. I'm also a junior going into my senior year. When the whole thing with George Floyd happened, nobody really wanted to talk about it. It was easy to get brushed under the rug, but we needed to have those uncomfortable conversations to recognize that there was a problem. And now that we see across the country that, people are rallying behind that problem to try to see like the systematic change that needs to occur happen. Maybe it's just me being an optimist, but in having those little conversations, I'm being part of like a bigger movement. I completely agree with Raquel. I felt as though this was my great opportunity to finally speak upon all the stuff that I just bottled down inside me that I was like, no one will listen. No one will be able to relate to what I'm saying. And then hearing other people and hearing that I'm not the only one in uh, who thinks like this, who has these opinions. I felt so empowered by all of it.
11: Having an adult make these faces really felt like I was heard for once. I know I have been told that I'm just a child. I don't know what I'm talking about. I should stay out of politics, but this is going to be my world that I'm going to be living in.
1: As an adult, I want you guys to hold me accountable, like teachers, adults are developing humans too. Some of the support and the love and the guidance and the learning that I have been getting during school closures have not been through me to students always, but the other way around.
11: These conversations can't be limited to an English class whenever we're going to read a book about something, or it can't just be limited to our history classes, it has to be involved in all of our classes, this is a big part of our education. We are soon going to be those adults that will be in society soon, and we need to know what is going on, and we need to know how to stay informed and stay educated and have these uncomfortable conversations.
2: Students at New Bedford High School with their English teacher Takeru Nagayoshi. That story was produced by WBUR's Carrie Young. Coming up, we talk to a doctor about how she, as a woman of color, is striving to be more anti racist, plus the impact of policing on the health of black women. It's next.
6: Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate change and the evolving clean energy economy. Support also comes from Douglas Stone and Mary Schwab Stone through the Smart Family Foundation of New York. Welcome back. I'm
2: Morgan Springer. Since the killing of George Floyd, some white Americans have been examining their role in perpetuating racism and committing to no longer be silent and inactive. Huma Farid is a Pakistani-American and an obstetrician at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center in Boston, and she recently wrote a commentary for WBUR's blog Cognoscenti with the headline, The Shame and Rage of Being a Minority in America Kept Me Silent, Not Anymore. Dr. Fareed joins us now to talk about her commentary. Glad to have you on next.
4: Thank you so much for inviting me.
2: So as you mentioned in the piece, as a Pakistani American, you've experienced racism and Islamophobia, including when you were growing up being called racial slurs after 9-11. Now you're a physician with three Harvard degrees and a position on the Harvard
4: faculty. Has that changed the way people treat you? Well, I think it is challenging because people might not necessarily know that when they first meet me. Um, and so I don't think that, that necessarily has changed random encounters. I do think that um, it has changed professional encounters. And I feel like that has helped to give me validation for who I am to other people.
2: With the Black Lives Matter movement, we've seen some people reexamining their role in perpetuating racism. Some might assume it's only white Americans thinking of all the times we've been silent when we should have spoken up. But you say in the piece that as a woman of color, you
4: feel guilty of that, too. Can you talk about that? Absolutely. And I, I also want to mention that in you know South Asian culture, there is a lot of colorism. Culturally. And so, what I mean by that is that light skin um, in both men and women is preferred rather than darker skin. And people will make comments about others who are considered to be darker skinned. So, I think that is the cultural context in which I grew up, knowing that yes, we may be all people of color and clearly we're not white, but there is an inherently sort of colorist perception that runs in the culture. And so, I felt that it is possible, absolutely, for people of color to also be racist or to have some tendencies towards colorism. And I wanted to examine that in my own life and also to be really aware of any contributions I could make to speaking out and being publicly anti-racist. Can
2: you give an example of a time you felt like you remained silent and wished
4: you'd said something? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think I referenced it in the blog article that I um, had a black patient who was a single mom and came in to give birth and she was, I mean, I didn't ask her why she was a single mom. It's not my business. And one of the other healthcare providers asked her where her partner was. And when the woman said he's in prison, the person's response was very dismissive, like, oh, I thought so. And that just really hurt me, but I stayed silent. And I still think about that, how I should have spoken up and said, this is irrelevant to the medical care we're providing her. She's a person, she's here in labor, like we need to take care of her and it doesn't matter. There are many reasons why women come in to labor and delivery alone. And I stayed silent. And that still, I still think about that. And I still think about how I should have, A, how I should have responded and B, I was with the residents, so who are physicians in training. And by my staying silent, I disempowered them as well. Um, And I should have served as a better role model. And I, I still remember that incident, still think about that a lot.
2: Do you have a sense or do you understand why you
4: didn't speak up before? Um, I am naturally an introvert, and it's very challenging for me to speak out uh, no matter what context. Like all the big department meetings, I'm always quiet. I never talk. It's just something that I'm not comfortable with, and I hate public speaking.
12: Um,
4: <laughs> this interview is obviously very different because I can't see anybody, so I have no idea how many people are <laughs> on the other end listening. But um, I think that there are many different ways in which we could use our voice. And uh, as I wrote in the blog, like I don't think I will ever, ever be the one standing in front of a crowd talking out about this. But I think that, for me, I feel very comfortable with writing. And um, I feel also very comfortable talking in smaller groups and doing, like, education around these topics. And so I think that, for me, is where I'll probably end up being more vocal.
2: What would you say to other physicians, including physicians of color, who, who might not
4: feel comfortable challenging the status quo? Yeah, it's been. That's an interesting question. I did not realize that the article was going to resonate with other physicians, but multiple people have reached out to me saying that this really resonated with them and, and thanking me for writing it, which I'm so grateful to work with colleagues who feel that way. Uh, but I, I think that I would want to remind my colleagues and you know other people in healthcare that we have a responsibility to our patients to address these issues. And I think there's so much data and so much research demonstrating that, you know, black women have higher maternal mortality rates, that uh, people of color have um, worse outcomes with even something like prostate cancer. And so I think that physicians can be very evidence-based and very data driven, but we have that data. And I think encouraging people to sort of, Engage with their patients and engage with their departments in addressing these inequities is really key.
2: As you're kind of looking back and re examining these moments where you wish you'd spoken up, what has that reflection been like for you?
4: Obviously, it's very challenging because nobody wants to feel like they have. Failed, right, and I uh, just finished Ibram Kendi's book, How to Be an Anti-Racist, and I identified with it so much because it's not enough for you to not be racist; like you have to actively be an anti-racist. Because the opposite of being racist is not necessarily being anti-racist. You have to—it's something you have to work on. And I think that um, the BLM movement has really shown me how much our colleagues who are black um, and our patients and the general community, how much they face and how my small experiences of microaggressions or discrimination is nothing compared to what they have gone through. Uh, And to be really aware of that, it involves speaking out, uh, particularly if people feel disempowered. I, I
2: think some people might also look at this, your experience and say, look, you've dealt with racism It's understandable that you wouldn't want to put yourself in a position where you could be punished or threatened, and it's really the responsibility of white people to step up. What's your response to that line of thinking?
4: I think that we all have a responsibility to improve the society in which we live. I don't think it's fair to place the burden on any one group and say that this is your responsibility to fix things. And we all need to acknowledge the backgrounds from which we come And I think working together is the best way to address any major societal changes that need to happen. Currently, I feel like people are very aware of systemic racism and institutional racism. And to address that, I don't think we can change that with the focus on one group alone. We all need to work together.
2: Huma Farid is an obstetrician at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center in Boston and author of a recent WBUR commentary called The Shame and Rage of Being a Minority in America Kept Me Silent not anymore. Dr. Fareed, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. The lifetime risk of being killed by police is highest for black men. Their deaths have sparked waves of protests and rallies in New England and across the country. But black women and girls have also fallen victim. As Connecticut Public Radio's Nicole Leonard reports, experts and advocates called the policing of black women a health care issue.
12: Connecticut activists have walked miles and stood for hours, sometimes days, to call for justice for George Floyd and an end to systemic racism, especially in policing. Between those demands, you could hear other names.
8: Breonna Taylor. Don't forget Brianna Taylor and Sandra Bland and Rakia Boyd and Atiana Jefferson and,
7: and Ayana Jones Sister
13: in Kentucky minding her own business at her house. She's dead,
5: Breonna Taylor.
12: They are black women and girls who have died at the hands of police during attempted arrests, raids, and other interactions. But their cases don't always stay at the forefront in discussions on police violence and racism, even as these incidents contribute to a lower life expectancy for black women than their white and Hispanic counterparts.
8: Black women tend to be the pillars and the ones that take the hits and the ones that show up and defend and the ones that clean up the mess afterwards and all of that.
12: That's Claudine Fox of the ACLU of Connecticut.
8: And so there is inherently this undercurrent in our society that just expect Black women to continue to, to take it. Um, and so it's very easy for Black women to unfortunately fall by the wayside when harm is committed against us as well.
12: It's well documented that black women already suffer adverse health outcomes, including disproportionately high rates of maternal mortality, homicide and chronic disease. Fox says this can all be compounded by how they are policed, which ultimately damages the health and well-being of black women, including trans women.
8: The amount of trauma that can that happens for black folks Black women living in a world where we can't even trust the people that are supposed to be the public safety officers of our community.
12: States and the federal government lack comprehensive data on the policing of women by race and ethnicity, especially in cases of use of force and related deaths. Connecticut collects data on traffic stops. It shows that Black women in 2018 made up a slightly higher percentage of stops when compared to their residential population. White and Hispanic women, by contrast, had noticeably lower percentages of stops when compared to their populations. Holly Tucker says she has suffered through this type of trauma directly. She sued New Haven police several years ago for police brutality during what she calls a false arrest following a traffic stop. The case was eventually settled.
8: Three years of this and I'm thinking, you know, I'll be fine and I'm still emotional at times. Um, But the only thing that will satisfy me and really bring healing to me is policy changes. So when I'm I'm driving around or my daughter goes out to drive around, she's I'm not worried
12: about being pulled over. In June, Tucker attended a rally in Hartford that focused on black women victims like Brianna Taylor, who was shot in her Kentucky home in March during a no-knock warrant police raid. She was a twenty-six year old EMT and an aspiring nurse. You know, so
8: there's so many cases that go unnoticed. I'm just a fighter, so I fought back.
12: Amani Allen says the trauma and stress from directly or indirectly experiencing acts of racism can impact Black women and their health. Allen is the executive dean of the Divisions of Community Health Sciences and Epidemiology at the University of California, Berkeley. She was an expert panelist last month for an event hosted by the Health Disparities Institute at UConn Health.
7: You know, I've talked to lots of women that talk about their tremendous concern for their For their sons and for their spouses and partners. And all of that adds to the burden of stress that women bear, increasing their biological and all other kinds of susceptibility, mental health, physical health, etc.
12: Allen says whether it's related to police violence, the COVID-19 pandemic, or other areas that contain disparities for black people action needs to be taken with the health of Black women and girls in mind.
7: We need to be asking that question about how is racism operating here, and really questioning all of our policies and being intentional with our policymakers, our legislators, to really put Black women in the narrative so that we're not um, an afterthought.
12: Breonna Taylor, was killed more than four months ago. Police officers involved in her death have been fired or placed on leave, but no arrests have been made. Several investigations are ongoing. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Nicole Leonard.
2: In June alone, at least five Black transgender women were killed nationwide, with several more killings following in July. Last year, the American Medical Association described the trend of violence against the transgender community as an epidemic. Rita Hester, who was killed in Boston, sparked a global movement for trans rights. Her case remains unsolved two decades later. At times in this next story, Hester's family misgenders her. And a warning, the story includes a reference to violence. WBUR's Krista Leguera takes it from here.
0: Sometimes, 30-year-old Tawfiq Chowdhury wonders what his life would have been like if his aunt were still alive. Rita Hester used to visit him in Hartford with gifts for the whole family. She took him to see Beauty and the Beast on Ice. Though she lived much of her adult life as a woman, her family still uses masculine pronouns, attempting to preserve a part of her that died long before she did.
13: I can remember being young, and he would always tell me I would go to Boston University, and he had, you know, I would stay at his apartment. He had this whole vision for me, and uh, I think I kind of saw it too.
0: Rita Hester's killing occurred in 1998 six weeks after Matthew Shepard's in Wyoming, which was one of the most high-profile anti-gay hate crimes. Many today don't even know Hester's name or that she was stabbed 20 times. They don't know that she loved figure skating. Her family had no idea that Hester's death sparked the annual vigil known as Transgender Day of Remembrance. Hester's sister, Diana, says she hasn't heard from police in over a decade. I used to call, and I got kind of discouraged and just got a little flustered. The last time I called, it's been over, over, well over 10 years. I feel like they really didn't take it seriously because my brother's a gay, black man, you know, poor, and I feel like they really didn't care, to be honest with you, at the time. Some months ago, Chowdhury walked up to an old building in Alston. It's the first time in his adult life that he's visiting his aunt's former home, a place he loved as a boy. For a moment, he imagines Hester in all her glory, hosting gatherings. Her apartment was filled with souvenirs from her travels to
6: Greece.
13: Right there, first, first apartment on the right, up those stairs. That door to the right. And that was it. But um, I remember a beautiful person walking through these doors and coming to get us. And the music would be blast. You could actually hear the music outside most of the time.
0: The last time Chowdhury was in Hester's apartment, he accompanied his family to clean out her belongings the day after her death. He was eight years old. She called him Ragamuffin. Rita's family took her cat and some of her art, including a sculpture of a gargoyle that stood watch over Hester's living room and now watches over her mother's home.
13: I can remember him telling me to call him Rita or Rita Garbo. And it was a long time ago. But nonetheless, I mean, my family loved him, you know what I mean? And with every breath, you know, um, he was a big part of our family. And just his spirit, his energy, it was always better to have him around than not around.
0: She could have been someone to talk to about coming out of the closet. Instead, his family lived in fear, not knowing who killed Rita, not realizing she had become a symbol for trans people around the world. Rita's mother, Kathleen, had one simple wish about the child that she
14: lost. I sometimes wish we had, like, had vacation together and go places together, which we really, you know, never did, but I wish we, you know, had really traveled and went places together.
0: Hester's name rang out through Roxbury at the Trans Resistance Vigil in March this summer. She was exalted with the matriarchs of Stonewall, Marsha P. Johnson, Sylvia Rivera, transgender women of color who stood against transphobia and police brutality, believing the future could be different and hoping they would live long enough to see it change.
10: When I say Rita, you say Hester Rita, Hester Rita, Hester Hester, Hester,
0: Rita. Chastity Bowick executive director of the Transgender Emergency Fund of Massachusetts, advocates for the needs of trans women in Boston. She said what happened to Rita could happen to any of them. That's her daily battle.
5: We want her to be looking down at us smiling, like want her legacy to move on and to mean something. We don't want her death to go in vain. Um, it's it's so very important. I mentioned Rita so very often because it's so vital to the work that I do. I'm trying to prevent women from being killed. I'm trying to provide them with the tools to be sustainable. And um, thinking about her continues to give me that motivation.
0: Hester's mom turns 82 this year. She said a break in the case would mean everything to her. She marched with the community after Hester's death. Now, the community continues lighting candles, crying out Hester's name, reminding people of who she was and why she mattered.
10: When I say Rita, you say Hester. Rita. Hester. 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 Hester.
2: Hester. That was WBUR's Crista Leguera. After the break, one woman's attempt to cut back on all the greenhouse gases that come from producing plastic. Plus, two main boys put a message in a bottle and push it out to sea. We follow that bottle to Massachusetts. It's next.
6: Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the John Merck Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate and clean energy.
2: We're back with an environmental story from Cape Cod. In the next decade, the production of plastics could generate more than 1.3 gigatons of greenhouse gas emissions per year. That's roughly equivalent to the emissions released by 295 coal plants. But one woman on the Cape has made it her business to reduce our dependence on single-use plastics. WCAI's Eve Zuckoff reports.
15: On a hot summer Friday, a RAV4 rolls into the parking lot of Cape Cod Beer in Hyannis. It's there for an outdoor festival with live music, cornhole, and, of course, beer. Trailing just behind the car is a bright green shed. The driver parks it right in front of the beer garden. So right now I am just unpacking, and then we kind of just open up these lovely doors. This is Jessica Georges. Even with a big sun hat covering up her red hair, she stands around five feet tall. And today, she's quickly pulling boxes, bottles, and buckets out from every corner of the mobile shed. The shed she calls Sally. I am setting up Sally's Shed. She is uh, one of the ladies of Green Road Refill. Uh, the other one is me. For the last three years, Jess, Sally, and Sally's predecessor, a converted school bus named Betty, have traveled to farmers markets and fairs all across the Cape and Nantucket. George's is selling eco-friendly and plastic-free products. Everything from bamboo toothbrushes to biodegradable deodorants. But the heart of her business is refills. So the whole idea is why do we need to buy a bottle with our product every time? It's like, how do we solve that? And um, I was like, well, why can't we just refill? And this was about three years ago. From her mobile shed, George's and her refills have helped reduce the amount of plastic that ends up in our oceans and in our waste streams. But the problem with single-use plastics has recently gotten even more complicated. Right. So there's a couple of new things that have occurred uh, through COVID over the last few months. One is that increase on, on PPE, the personal protective equipment that we're seeing on the ground, the masks, the face shields the gloves, things like that. This is Carrie Parcell, the Cape's own recycling expert working with the Department of Environmental Protection. Unfortunately, she says, none of that PPE is recyclable. It's all trash. And in fact, we've all been throwing out a lot more of everything.
9: So we've seen a huge increase in household trash. Around Massachusetts, it's been 10 to 15 percent on household trash. And
15: when it comes to plastics, recycling is not the answer that most of us want it to be. Of all the plastics produced in the last few years, only about 9% eventually got recycled, according to the Environmental Protection Agency. And this is the problem Jessica Georges is trying to solve. Hi there, how you doing? Well, good. So you, have you um, refilled with us? The beer festival is in full swing. The young guitarist is playing covers, and people are wandering over to the Green Road Refill Mobile Shed. They start by gingerly examining wool dryer balls and refillable floss until finally they look up. They see shelves with dozens of colorful jugs that are full of eco-friendly shampoo, lotion, dish soap. I didn't realize that you had sunscreen, so I'm very intrigued by that. Some of these customers bring their own bottles that once held perfume or laundry detergent. Others are browsing through a bucket of donated and sanitized bottles. When they've made their choice, locally made hand sanitizer or clove and peppercorn conditioner, they hand their containers to George's, who asks, yeah, So, um, how much do you want? It's $2 an ounce. She measures by squirts, often counting to herself 23, 24, 25. Half full. Yeah, half
7: full. We could do that.
15: Great. Good she weighs on. the bottle and tallies up the total. Beer and sunscreen. Who would have thought you'd be buying these two things together, right? <laughs> Georges says she's refilled over a thousand plastic bottles to carry parcel. Efforts like the Green Road refill are part of consciousness raising that leads to larger change.
9: And that's how we can be more accountable.
11: Most
15: of us don't have that ability to decide what shows up on our shelves, but to some degree we do. Because if we stop purchasing that in mass, they're gonna stop producing it because it's not gonna make them money anymore. And that's what's really important is getting that catalyst going for that change. Jessica George's dream is a brick-and-mortar shop for refills. But until that day comes, she'll keep driving her bright green shed to farmers' markets and, yes, beer festivals. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Eve Zuckoff. A couple of weeks back,
2: we asked you, our listeners, if you think the pandemic or racial justice protests have motivated you to take more or less action, on climate change. Listener Gerhard Schad, who lives in Mystic, Connecticut, and summers in Maine, sent us an email saying, we cannot afford to delay on climate action. We called him up for more of his thoughts.
5: And it seems very obvious to me that this being an election year, the biggest thing voters can do about climate change is to vote for the right candidate in November.
2: And do you have a personal opinion about who that would be?
5: Why, sure I do. I don't know. You know, they have we haven't had our primary yet. (laughs) But, uh, you know, it's pretty clear that uh, Joe Biden is going to be our candidate.
2: If there were a President Biden, what would you like to see him do?
5: An emphasis on conversion of energy production to wind and solar. Stop subsidizing fossil fuels. I don't know how to do this, but... The world would be a lot better if people co- converted more to a plant rich diet uh, used less meat and uh, dairy
2: i um I hope I don't offend with this question, and please tell me if i do you you wrote in your email that you're eighty five I think a lot of people talk about how active young people are in the fight for climate change, because they say, you know, we're going to be living in this world. Can you talk a little bit about that maintained commitment?
5: I feel this a sense of guilt. It's our generation, since World War II, that's caused, you know, a lot, a lot of the problems. We didn't know what we were doing you know by by buying big trucks and when we could have gotten around on a bicycle <laughs> you know we 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 didn't know that was a problem until you know like thirty years ago. The other thing is we benefited from from all this profligate use of fossil fuels we're not the ones that have to pay for it it's the future generations that have to pay for it, so I feel very guilty about that.
2: That was Gerhard Schad, a listener from Connecticut. This week, as we prepare to head back to school, we want to hear how you're feeling about returning to the classroom, whether you're a student, teacher, parent, or administrator. Are you worried about safety? Any advice for others going through the process? Leave a comment at 860-275-7595. Again, 860-275-7595. Or you can email us at next at ctpublic.org. One more time, that's next at ctpublic.org. And thank you. Imagine a time before the pandemic for a moment. You're a kid in fifth grade, and you've got an idea. Hey, why don't we send out a message in a bottle?
15: Before I sent out the bottle, I don't really think that the coronavirus was really in America that much. We were sort of just planning, like, try to make a raft to make it so it doesn't hit the rocks. And if it does hit the rocks, then it's just part of the raft that hits it.
2: That's Joe Gray, a fifth grader from Cape Elizabeth, Maine. He and his friend Aiden Marks found a bottle, wrote a note, stuffed it inside, and tossed it out to sea. Here's Aiden.
11: I was like, I wonder where it's going to go. I wonder where it's going to be. I mean,
2: you never know what's going to happen. It was early March when Joe and Aiden's bottle washed up on shore. Someone found it, tossed it back, and on the bottle's journey went. The first person who found it was Tom Bork. He was helping a friend in Biddeford, Maine when he saw the bottle.
5: It was just a, a regular wine bottle with a cork in it, but see there was a note in it which was very intriguing. Mike and I fished the note out of the bottle with a wire and added on to it that we had found it and put the note back in the bottle and went back out. I don't have a very good arm, so I threw it into the water. And of course, if you throw something in the ocean you want, it goes right out to sea. But if you throw something out in the ocean and you want the ocean to take it, it would just as soon give it back to you. So I picked it up, I threw it again, and then we left. I said, well, we'll see what happens.
10: I remember the moment when I saw it. My eye caught something rolling in the surf and I realized it was a bottle and I I was instantly intrigued. So then I brought the note inside and read it and immediately texted what I learned to be the mother of one of the fifth grade boys and she wrote this is awesome I can't wait to see where it turns up next thanks for taking time to write to us and for relaunching it this is especially fun because one of our families on lockdown because one of us was exposed to someone who tested positive for the virus. I was fully committed that I was going to get this bottle back out there when I read that. That's when, after a couple of days, I thought of Robert, a Gloucester fisherman that I had met in January. If he's going on a trip, I'm sure he'll take it.
14: That day, the whales were everywhere. It's one of the the majestic things about being a fisherman is that you're immersed in this world. You see things on a fairly regular basis that Most of the world doesn't see. The whales are fluking, they're fin slapping, they're breaching, they're going nuts. And the birds come in and and feed on the scraps from the whales feeding. So there's seagulls and there's gannets. It's like rockets hitting the ocean and these plumes coming up. And I said, you know, we're going to catch some fish in this tow. And we did. We, we caught a decent amount of fish and we put the bottle in with the fish. And then I said, you know what? This is probably gonna be the right place to put the bottle out. I had Danny take a couple pictures of me holding the bottle and then we just tossed it over the back of the boat. The crazy part about it is that it could end up just about anywhere. Here are these two kids up in Maine. They're curious and they're creative. They put an idea into motion. When you do that, the outcome doesn't always get you to where you want to go, but without that, we don't move forward as a society, as a people, as, a, as anything. Everything that we've done to get us to where we are started with an idea, and knowing that there's going to be the next generation doing that and, and propagating that process means that there's hope for tomorrow.
10: We all think that somebody will find the bottle. The connections just seem to continue, and that's what's been such a beautiful diversion for all of us in the middle of this. We feel connected. We feel like we're going to stay connected, and just at a time when we all need it at most.
15: It's going to be over soon. It's something that you can look up to. It's something that you can look forward to in the future, something that a lot of people can do in this very
11: wacky world time.
2: (laughs) That was Aiden, a fifth grader from Cape Elizabeth, Maine. He and his friend Joe tossed a message in a bottle out to sea earlier this year. The bottle traveled to Biddeford, Maine and Gloucester, Massachusetts. We don't know where the bottle is right now. We checked with Joe's mom and she says unfortunately they haven't heard from anyone in a few months, at least not yet. That story originally aired on WBUR's On Point and was produced by Sidney Wertheim. And that's our show this week. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Just search Next New England. Next is produced by me, Morgan Springer. Vanessa De La Torre is our executive editor. The executive producer is Katie Tolarski. Daniela Luna is our intern. All the music you hear on Next is by musicians in New England. If you want to know who you heard today, visit our show page at nextnewengland.org. The New England News Collaborative is powered by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, Connecticut Public Radio, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, New England Public Media, WBUR, WCAI, WGBH, WSHU, and The Publics Radio.